Welcome to this week's episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Giles, from Medicom Medical Publishers, in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. Today, we take an in-depth look at the value of telehealth. Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Later in this episode, we have an interview given by Physicians Weekly's executive editor, Christopher Cole, who is with cerebrovascular neurosurgeon, Dr. Peter Rasmussen, from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. Dr. Rasmussen is committed to digital health solutions, and as such, he is the chief clinical officer of The Clinic, which is the only digital health company that combines world-renowned clinical expertise of the Cleveland Clinic with innovative connectivity technologies. They talk about the role of virtual second opinions and the cost savings associated with them. Unnecessary testing and procedures are expensive, and one study found that more than 622,000 patients in the state of Washington alone underwent an unnecessary test or procedure in a one-year period, and that ended up costing approximately $282 million U.S. dollars. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. But first, we talk with Professor Fatima Cody-Stanford, who is an obesity medicine physician scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And she recently published in both Nature Medicine and Lancet Digital Health about how telehealth can both support and exacerbate health disparities. Enjoy listening. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. I just wanted to touch bases about your article that you you sketched a very interesting paradox with regard to telehealth. Can you talk about, sketch some of the benefits of telehealth and what are some of the factors that fuel the skepticism around it? Absolutely. So when we think about telemedicine and, you know, we really saw some of the advent of this pre-COVID-19, but I think we saw this major acceleration in medicine. And we know medicine can be slow to move, uh, slow to integrate technological advances. Most, you know, we're very set in our ways. But with the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw a need that needed to be fulfilled. Patients needed to be seen, but we wanted to reduce their exposure to infectious disease. And of course, in this case, the global pandemic, that was COVID-19. Prior to the pandemic, for example, for me, what I, I was using telemedicine, but was facing resistance from an institutional standpoint on increasing that. And what I found was that patients really liked connecting with me via a telemedicine platform. They found it easy. They didn't have to trek into, I live in Boston, Massachusetts, here in the United States. They didn't have to trek into downtown Boston, find an expensive parking space, take away from their time at work. Some of them live further away and may take half a day to get to me, a half a day to leave. So it allowed them to be productive, still get the care that they needed, and just turn on a button, you know, and pop on the screen. And we were able to engage in a meaningful way um, about their health and the disease that I treat is obesity. And so you can imagine it's not only a, a big chronic disease, but a lot of other associated chronic diseases that really require really consistent touch points to make Make sure that we're making progress. Now, let's talk about the downfalls of telemedicine um, and where we really see a need for potential improvement. 
And I would say that this really, a lot of this yields to what we see as it relates to disparities, disparities um, universally, particularly as we look at socioeconomic status. In order to do telemedicine well, we need good broadband connections, Wi-Fi connections, really high speed Wi-Fi, to have a call that doesn't break up, one that I'm able to carry it out much like I would an in-person visit. Unfortunately, those that come from lower socioeconomic status, regardless of where they're located, don't have that same level of access. And so the people that may be most likely to benefit from it are least able to access it. And so that can be problematic. I find that my patients that are older in age feel very intimidated by the use of technology to um, conduct visits. And many of them have explicitly stated to me, I don't want to see you on that screen. I want to see you in real life. I want to have that human connection. And that's what they've done for their whole lives. My patients that are the baby boomers and beyond, they prefer that in-person touch point and will do whatever it takes to wait to ensure that they get those visits with me. Of course, the other downfall is because it's not in person, we're unable to do things like a thorough physical exam. I don't have the clinical tools and resources to very adequately evaluate your heart, your lungs, your abdominal region, if you're having issues surrounding any abdominal pain. And so these things, I think, will improve over time as we get more tools that allow us to kind of do a remote exam. But until then, I think we do struggle with that being a major issue in the telehealth visit. So how can patient-clinician relationships through telemedicine impact health equity? You know, I think that we we do have a disparity in who's able to access it. So if you have patients that are coming from low SES, um, unfortunately, sometimes also those from racial and ethnic minority groups that um, often may have more pronounced um, healthcare issues, they may not be able to consistently access platforms, may not have the technology that allows them to do that in a very consistent fashion. So um, are more so forced into having to yield to what the status quo was, which is, of course, those in-person visits, which then make them have to leave their jobs, which they needed to to be able to have, you know, things like adequate food for their household, you know, so they have food security, housing security, things of that sort. So it's a little bit of a double-edged sword for that patient population. Right. And are there different competencies required for a physician in practicing good telehealth? You know, I do think that there are competencies, but I would say that we don't know universally what those are. And, you know, we aren't necessarily teaching those yet, right? Because I think that the advent of telemedicine was like rapid. I think about my hospital here at Mass General Hospital and looking at the percentage of physicians that were using telemedicine pre-pandemic to during the pandemic, we went from about 10% of us to 90% of us overnight. Okay, so that means that people that were never doing anything, not of course, not only had to get familiar with technology, they had to learn how to make meaningful connections with patients, sometimes from the very first time, very first visit via telemedicine. So in terms of like core competencies, I would say the key thing is recognizing that telemedicine is a good, useful tool for many, but how it can actually increase and widen disparities for marginalized populations around the world, recognizing that, you know, for many patients, they will also need to complement telemedicine with in-person interactions in order to have the best possible outcomes and recognize that I would say telemedicine is here to stay. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it will become more and more integral to the work that we do across all areas of medicine. And so that's what we'll see. And um, you made a comment in your article that I was wanted to follow up on. You mentioned that patient satisfaction with telehealth primarily is influenced by the degree of trust. 
and their physician. So that's fascinating research. How can you help foster that trust? You know, I think, you know, when we look at trust, you know, there are many different factors that affect trust. For marginalized groups, for example, Black Americans, those that are descendants of enslaved here in the U.S., there have been a lot of historical reasons why we've seen mistrust. Issues like the Tuskegee experiment. It's been experimentation on Black women's bodies by J. Marion Sims. The Henrietta Lacks situation, you know, at Hopkins, where the Halas stem cell line was taken away. Those historical atrocities definitely set up an issue with distrust. But you know what I think creates more trust is actually those encounters that patients and their families experience day to day with their physicians. Do they feel as though they are being treated in the way that they would treat their family members? And that's something that I really try to foster with my patients. What would I want if I were sitting in that seat? How would I want to be filled? How would I want to be treated? You know, I know this isn't a faith-based interview, but it really kind of goes back to one of the Christian ideologies, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's exactly, I think, what builds the level of trust that's needed to really be successful in medicine at large, but also in the context of telemedicine. Right. And what are some of the solutions that are necessary to sort of level playing ground here across all people? How do we do that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because there are several strategies that are being employed here in the U.S. For example, large like broadband providers are deciding that they're going to invest money, much like you're saying, into ensuring those that are from low-income populations are getting the broadband access that persons like me that have more resources are able to get access to. I think that we're going to need to see more and more of that, right, because they're able to help level the playing field. Now, in addition to that broadband access, if you don't have a piece of technological equipment that goes with the broadband access, maybe we need to begin to think about those solutions too. We know some very rich companies that are based here out of the U.S. I'm going to name a few of them, Apple, Microsoft, for example, some of the largest companies, most lucrative companies in the entire world, you know, providing, you know, the type of equipment that's necessary, computers. We don't, they don't need to have the, the latest and the greatest that just came out, you know, and was released, but having adequate computers. I have one of my older adult patients who is in his 80s, and I remember when we finally got one and was able to complete our first telehealth visit, and the reason he had not been able to do so, in addition to him having some, I would say, technological literacy issues, was the fact that he didn't have an adequate computer. And he got a computer, and he was so excited to finally sign on and tell me all the bells and whistles of his computer. The sheer joy that I heard in his voice really was was unprecedented and, and really brought a, a great smile to my heart. But it's these things that, that may seem very minor that really matter and allow patients to feel like they can communicate, even when, you know, using technology is not necessarily the strategy they might, you know, choose for, for seeking healthcare. And so going forward is the pandemic seems to be sort of normalizing at this point. And at this point, we're maybe able to go back to the office in person to see our doctors. What are the next steps? How do you think we're going to you know, stabilize this sort of telehealth. I think it definitely has advantages. I think it's here to stay. What What's the percentage going to be? Well, you know, I think it's going to vary from clinic to clinic. I'm just going to give you what my personal perspective is based upon what my actual clinical practice is. During the pandemic, there were 14 solid months where I saw patients exclusively via telemedicine. And, and I have moved to seeing approximately 20% of my patients in person based upon patient demand. 
patients are demanding the use of telemedicine. They like that they can immediately go back to work by just clicking a button and turning their body to the right side if they're in an office setting or, or things of that sort. So believe it or not, the patient demand for telemedicine, at least in my field, which is obesity medicine, is still very, very high. And it's not just for me as an individual. If we look at our center as a whole, that's what most people are requesting. So I would say most of our, our physicians, at least, are doing somewhere between 50 to 80% of their visits via telemedicine, which is really large. But that's not because we as the physician chose it. We are setting our schedules based upon what the patients are choosing. And many patients just prefer it. It's easier. They save a lot of time. They save a lot of money. It's more efficient. So I think that that's what you're going to see. And I think it will be on the preference of the physician. I think I'm a patient. I think the patient's preference should drive this, right, as opposed to like, you know, me liking to be at home, which I do like to be at home. But I ask my patients, hey, like, what would you like? And if they, oh, no, Dr. I'd love to see you, you know, via telemedicine. No offense, I, I still like you. You know, I just, I'd love to do this via telemedicine. And, and that's what I hear from a lot of my patients. But I think that can vary from, from discipline to discipline, you know, you know, even within the same hospital or same healthcare setting. And so I would say the key thing that we just have to do is listen to the patients. What do the patients want? Because what the patients want is what will ultimately benefit their health overall. So I just wanted to thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next up, Physicians Weekly's executive editor, Chris Cole, interviews Peter Rasmussen from the Cleveland Clinic and The Clinic. So I was hoping you could you know, start with by briefly explaining what exactly virtual second opinions are, how they work, and, and what they're meant to achieve. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me, Chris. Virtual second opinions are very similar to a second opinion that a patient might seek in a standard office practice. Uh, so it's uh, not uncommon when patients are faced with a rare diagnosis or facing the possibility of significant surgery like cardiac surgery or neurosurgery or have a cancer diagnosis that they may want to get a second opinion. And most of the time, uh, that's done in person. A virtual second opinion really allows the patient to get an opinion from a Cleveland Clinic physician wherever they may be. We try to make the process uh, very easy for the patient by doing all of the work of acquiring their medical records and their imaging and their pathology, and then having that patient uh, meet up with a Cleveland Clinic expert virtually, either by video or telephone. And there are a lot of advantages to getting a remote second opinion, as you can imagine. Sure. Now, do you run into any sort of issues between state-to-state care? The way we've structured our uh, second opinion program is that we offer patients educational second opinions. So patients have to have a diagnosis when they initiate the process with us, like, say, breast cancer. And then our experts will educate the patient on what uh, therapy would be like if they were to travel to Cleveland for further uh, management of their breast cancer. I see. Could you talk a bit about the successes you've experienced or witnessed with the use of these virtual second opinions? Yeah, it's it's really quite interesting. If you look at the outpatient setting, about 5% of the diagnoses that are delivered in standard outpatient practice are subsequently found to be incorrect. And it's easy to understand this when there are a myriad of diseases or conditions that can affect the human body. And the human body has only so many ways that it can react to that disease. So frequently, several diseases will manifest themselves as a constellation of symptoms or complaints. So it's understandable that physicians may not get it right the first time. 
In addition, there are a variety of ways of treating many different conditions. And depending upon the knowledge base or the experience with a particular condition that a physician's facing, he or she may recommend something to a patient that a different physician may recommend something different. What we're finding in our second opinion program is about a quarter of the time, uh, our physicians will differ with the original diagnosis. And about three quarters of the time, we'll have different treatment recommendations for the patient. And that can be very substantial. It could be perhaps uh, continuing conservative therapy, say physical therapy or occupational therapy for an orthopedic complaint, as opposed to jumping to a surgical procedure. Uh, or it might be addition of an additional chemotherapeutic agent for a cancer patient. I was just reviewing opinion uh, prior to us getting together, and our breast oncology expert was recommending a, an additional line of chemotherapeutic agents for the particular patient that he was managing. Uh, so it can have a profound impact on a patient's life. Occasionally, we do have major changes in diagnosis. A couple of notable diagnoses that we've seen over the years were patients that were diagnosed with colon cancer, and our pathologist reviewed the biopsy specimens and actually felt that the patient had inflammatory bowel disease and not cancer. And uh, you can imagine that's got major implications for the patient uh, on every front. And you know, seeing those kinds of results are really pretty gratifying. So now, just thinking out loud here, do you have contact with that patient's main care provider, or is it up to the patient to kind of rectify the differences between their first opinion and second? Yeah, we really take our cues from the patient on this. The standard second opinion that we'll deliver remotely will share our educational recommendations with the patient, and they get that in written form in addition to telephone or video. They're free to share that with their local physicians if they would like. Sometimes the patients do request that we forward our recommendations to their local physicians, and of course, we're happy to do that. We do have some relationships with some commercial insurance carriers, and as part of those contracts, they request that our written opinions are shared back to their medical directors. Of course, this is all with the patient's consent at the time of the initiation of the second opinion so that they know that we're going to be sharing them back with their medical directors. And, you know, that, that may sound kind of scary, you know, to some patients, but in reality, it's actually quite a bit beneficial to the patient because if we're recommending additional therapy, then the medical director is brought in early to approve uh, additional procedures or additional uh, agents that may be needed uh, for them. Uh, or if we're recommending a clinical trial for a rare disease or end-stage cancer, same thing. The medical director can quickly approve enrollment for that patient into the clinical trial. What cost savings are associated with the virtual second opinions and you know how those compare with traditional second opinions. Yeah, you know, as you can imagine, uh, there's three potential outcomes of a second opinion. It could be agree with diagnosis and treatment plan from the uh, original physician. And then of course there's no cost savings there. We might agree with diagnosis uh, and different treatment plan and that may treatment plan may cost less or the change in diagnosis and or change in treatment plan may cost more. As an example of this, we've done second opinions with patients who were deemed to be end-stage uh, heart failure patients who their local docs were recommending hospice care. We send those uh, patients to our transplant team, and occasionally they'll recommend cardiac transplant. So obviously that's a substantial difference in cost if they're going to proceed to transplant. But what we find across our second opinion program is on average, uh, for each opinion that we deliver, we're saving about $12,000 in cost for the payer. And 
in certain areas like musculoskeletal complaints, uh, it's actually quite a bit higher. Uh, we're averaging about a $25,000 savings uh, per opinion on musculoskeletal complaints. Of course, if we're changing diagnosis, um, and of course, there's always a chance that we're wrong and the original physician's correct. Usually, if we're going to change a diagnosis in a cancer situation, uh, we'll pull in multiple physicians to review the pathology in the clinical course uh, to lend more credence to our opinion. But that could be tremendously impactful to the patient in terms of making sure they get on the correct treatment regimen for their cancer, um, as opposed to you know a lower grade or a different type of cancer. How would a patient find out about this option for them to connect with your team and you know get these second opinions? Yeah, you know, it all it all starts with I guess with the curiosity of the patient and wondering, you know, if the recommendations are getting from the local doc is uh, correct. Uh, sometimes the local physician also may recommend a second opinion. They may say, "Hey, look, you've got a relatively rare cancer. Uh, I've only seen this once or twice more in my life. I would recommend you get a second opinion." And, you know, you can get it uh, remotely from Cleveland Clinic or some other healthcare center, or you can go in person and get a second opinion. Uh, that occasionally happens. Uh, sometimes patients don't mesh with their uh, local physicians. You know, the chemistry is not good for uh, whatever reason. And they, you know, may want to seek an additional physician's opinion on what's uh, going on with them. Uh, if patients uh, do want to find a second opinion, the easiest way to find us is through a Google search. I mean, you can type Cleveland Clinic uh, second opinion. Uh, and we'll pop, pop up for that. And as I mentioned, we really try to make it very, very easy for the patient to allow them to continue to get care in their local market while uh, the second opinion is happening in parallel. And the advantage of a virtual second opinion, of course, is that the patient doesn't need to travel. They don't need to incur the expense of airplane fare or gas or hotels or time away from work. And they can get all of this uh, done, again, from the convenience of their home. And what ultimately is a cost savings is if they were to travel to Cleveland for that second opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any possible flaws that you've come across with these virtual second opinions or, you know, barriers to more widespread use? And if so, you know, how do you think those barriers can be overcome? Uh, you know, one of the biggest barriers is the interoperability of the medical records. Obviously, if uh, patients have copy of their records and paper. It's very easy for us to obtain them from the patients, you know, via fax or uh, FedEx or a PDF. If we do leverage the health information exchanges uh, broadly that exist, but still in electronic medical records are not fully interchangeable, uh, we do the best we can in that regard. Uh, so a, a fair amount of time and barriers exist around interoperability. Uh, medical imaging is actually much easier to transmit than the written uh, medical records. Uh, pathology specimens have been exchanged historically for decades uh, through the U.S. mails or now uh, courier services. Uh, it's very common for pathologists around the country to work together and collaborate on uh, reinterpretation of specimens in that way. And that's a, a very easy thing to do. Other barriers are that uh, many insurance companies don't pay for these virtual second opinions. And in that situation, then the uh, patients do need to pay out of pocket for this. And of course, they can leverage their health savings account to use funds that may be in there. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 